You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris. Good morning. Anna, you are quite famous, I must tell you. And it feels really amazing to be speaking to you directly like this. Oh, I couldn't put it better myself. Ah, about you, that is. Fantastic. So, so, so Chris, <laughs> happy Friday to you. Um, tell me yeah, about this. Uh, tell me about this brain machine interface. It sounds quite complex, but I guess that's what you do. Well, uh, one of the really big challenges in medicine is to try to help people who have become paralyzed. And if people have a spinal cord injury or a stroke, sometimes people can end up in a situation where they lose the ability to control their body. And they can even become what's called locked in, where they have no way of sending any signals from their brain to their muscles, so they just can't move. So this means communicating for them is almost impossible. And that means having any kind of quality of life and quality interaction with other people is, is also impossible. So researchers for a long time have been trying to find a way to get signals out of the brain and use them to do things for the person who's thinking them. And it's been a slow process, but this week there's been quite a big step forward because there's a paper in the journal Nature Scientific Reports, and this is by a guy called Miguel Nicolelis, who's at Duke University in America, and he and his colleagues have come up with a system which is a brain-machine interface consisting of hundreds of tiny, hair-thin electrodes implanted into various areas of the brains of two experimental monkeys, and by beaming the signals that these electrodes pick up wirelessly back to a computer, they've written some clever computer programs that can decode the neurological chatter that these electrons are picking up from the brains of these monkeys and work out what they want to do and then use that neurological information to enable these monkeys that are just sitting in wheelchairs to drive themselves around a room to retrieve a grape or a bunch of grapes as a reward just by thinking about it, which is a big step forward because it means that uh, as we get better at making these electrodes, you could consider putting them into humans who have the same sorts of problems, paralysis, inability to move, and by thinking the right things, they could actually achieve very high-level, high-quality and high-resolution movements with prosthetic devices, including wheelchairs, but possibly also uh, exoskeleton devices to help them to walk and that kind of thing. Mm. That's quite impressive, I must say. It sounds um, it sounds quite futuristic and, and exactly where, I guess, we're going. Um, but, I mean, uh, it'll make a huge change, I guess. And, and I mean, in your mind, though, uh, Chris, how, how far, how, I mean, how long is, 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 would this happen? I mean, is it something that will happen in the next few years, you think? Well, scientists are already at the stage where we have electrodes we can implant into brains, we, uh, in humans, I mean. We also have ways of interpreting brain activity using these sorts of computer programs in order to make simple things move. The step forward here was that this is the first time anyone's made a, a, a recording from both sides of the brain and used it to get a whole body movement type picture off the computer. So it's a slow incremental process. And 10 years ago, people were just beginning to get arm movements to work like this. Now we're at the stage where people can actually drive wheelchairs. You know, admittedly, it's a monkey at this stage, but monkeys' brains are very similar to human brains. And so what works in these monkeys is almost certain going to work in a person were you to do this to a person the key thing is to make sure it's safe and and uh, going to work in the long term because you don't want to subject someone to the brain surgery they would need for this if you you then had to keep doing it every three months because the electrodes stop working for instance so mm-hmm. that's really what they're going to be doing now is optimizing the system and making sure it's safe 
Oh, absolutely stunning. So, guys, the Naked Scientist is here. So, do call us on um, code, uh, do call us with your questions on uh, 011 883 and 021 uh, But we'll start with a question from Roy. Roy from Bryanston. Hi, Adekas. Um, I've got a question um, relating to a, um, a device that a salesman was trying to sell me. And basically, he said it's a, it's a grabber magnetic device that, um, that hangs in a room uh, and is able to remove damp from walls by ionizing the water in, in the walls. And I just wondered if you if you'd come across anything like this and whether his, uh, his claims are... I'd be tempted to ionise his sales technique if I was you, Roy. I'd tell him to take a hike. Uh, absolute rubbish. Um, the thing that will make your walls dry out is not having as much water in them because the walls are properly damp-proofed and also the, the room is warm and this drives the moisture out and then you repair any leaks to stop the moisture coming either uh, down from above or, as I say, damp-proof course to stop it coming in from below. Ionisation just means turning something into something with a charge on it by by stripping off electrons or giving something some electrons. That's not going to make any difference to whether your roof is leaking. Right, and now taking um, a call from Louise. Hi, Louise. Hello, good morning. Um, I seem to be my husband's mosquito repellent. So the mosquitoes (laughs) prefer to bite me um, and not him. So I want to know if that's a real phenomena or just my imagination. No, you're absolutely right, and you're, you're a man's best friend, put it that way, because my mm. wife is identical to you. She mm. is the world's biggest mosquito magnet, and whenever we go out, if we go somewhere where there's lots of mosquitoes around, I never have to take any precautions, and the mosquitoes make a beeline, if that's the right sort of metaphor to use, straight for my wife, and they bite her, and she gets covered and I don't get touched. The reason this happens, scientists have spent a lot of time looking into this, including a guy called uh, John Pickett, who's a researcher at Rothamsted Research in the UK, and the way they do these experiments is you put people into a chamber and you seal the chamber and you collect all of the air from around them as they sit there in this chamber, and you can then put the air that's coming off the people into an analyzer which tells you what molecules they're sweating out. And by doing these experiments and comparing people who get bitten a lot or say, whenever I go out, I'm a mosquito magnet, or whenever I go out, mosquitoes never touch me, if you compare the patterns and spectrums or spectra of different chemicals that come out from those people, you find differences. And there are specific groups of people who make specific combinations of chemicals in their sweat that just naturally ooze out of their skin, which either smell gorgeous or smell disgusting to a mosquito. And researchers are, are hoping that they'll be able to find the ideal combination of smells, which, which, if mixed up, would be either irresistible to a mosquito or highly repugnant to a mosquito, so that we could come up with a naturally inspired biocompatible insect repellent or insect attractant to use in traps. And they've actually got some quite good leads on this now. There's one compound that was made by uh, actually sniffing lots and or electronically sniffing lots and lots of sweaty men and working out what the chemicals were and tying it to um, whether or not mosquitoes like them. And they've actually got this stuff now that really smells really rather nasty to a human, but mosquitoes love it. And uh, mosquitoes like it because they want to track down their prey, us, and bite us to get a blood meal. Well, if you make something smell better than the nearest human does, the mosquitoes will all go there instead. And so that's what they're doing.
Mm. So um, we'll be taking more of your calls um, and more of your questions for The Naked Scientist. But first... 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Right, you're on 702 and Cape Talk with me, Sylvester Chauke. Uh, today's Friday, Friday stand-in uh, for Ready. Uh, we're back with the Naked Scientist taking your questions. So do call us on 011-883-0702 and 021-446-0567. Um, in fact, Chris, there's a, a question from a listener, um, and she's asking a good question, actually, or he's asking a good question. Why are we told it's unsafe to keep bread in the fridge, yet we can freeze bread? Well, I, I don't think it's unsafe to keep bread in the fridge because, well, I know lots of people who do and they're still here, but <laughs> there is a difference between what you do with things in the fridge and what you do with things in the freezer. The reason freezers keep things for the long term is because freezers are normally at about minus 20 degrees C and the fridge is about 4 degrees C. And the lower you make the temperature, the lower... Uh, the rate of chemical reactions. Chemical reactions are all about molecules bumping into each other and having enough energy to react with each other. And if you lower the temperature, the speed at which particles move around drops. So the impact with which they hit each other drops and the rate of those impacts, how often they happen, drops. And therefore chemical reactions become much less likely. Mm. Now metabolism is powered by chemical reactions. So if you slow down the rate of chemical reactions, you slow down metabolism what makes food go off? Well, bugs. Usually, in the case of bread, it goes mouldy because of fungi. And there are some bacteria, including one called Seracea, which can grow in cold conditions as well. So if you make food really, really, really cold, minus 20 degrees, metabolism is so slow that these bugs can't make much energy, if any at all, so they don't grow, so your food doesn't go off or degrade. In the fridge, at 4 degrees C... There are nonetheless, despite the cooler temperatures, some bugs that can still grow and, th- and flourish at those temperatures. So that's why fridges are less good at keeping food mm. in a good state for the long term. But they don't have the disbenefit, the disadvantage, that when you freeze something, it obviously damages the things it's made of. If you freeze your strawberries and then defrost them, you know why you don't freeze strawberries terribly often. Because it just busts them to pieces because the ice crystals form inside the tissue of the fruit and break it to pieces. So that's why we make a compromise and we have a fridge, which means rather than freeze something, making it inconvenient because it's so cold, you have to then defrost it and it damages the integrity of the food. It nonetheless slows down the metabolism of the bugs enough that food lasts longer in the fridge than it would uh, uh, on the surface. Um, I think you can keep bread in your fridge, but it might get a bit damp, and it mm. won't. It certainly won't remain safe forever. But it'll be it'll be all right, better than sitting on the worktop in a in a, in a warm room. Mm. So freezer is definitely uh, the way to go here. Uh, we're back to your calls, and let's take a question now from uh, Hamilton in Rodiport. Hi, Hamilton. I am Ken. Uh, I have a question for the, for the naked scientist. Go for it. Uh, I, I want to ask about the organ transplant. In fact, the question here is, let's say I received uh, an organ like, for example, a kidney. Can I, at a later stage, transfer the kidney to another person? If the answer is yes, how long can a kidney live? Or an, any organ donor for that matter? That's a, Hi, that's Hamilton. A yes, very interesting. And the question is, so if I take a, an organ from one person and put it into another, could I then turn the organ uh, donation recipient into an organ donor themselves and take, take mm. the organ back out of them and put it into somebody else? The answer is you could do that, but you probably wouldn't want to. 
when we transplant organs, unless we transplant them into people who are genetically identical to ourselves, in other words, if I've got a twin who's a genetic clone of me, then they won't be able to tell the difference between an organ from me or from my clone. And that's because the, the immune system is looking at chemical markers which are encoded by your DNA on the surfaces of organs, and they're identical if you are genetically identical. But when you take an organ from someone who is a close match for you but not completely identical, you have to give immune-suppressing drugs because the immune system will otherwise nonetheless still try and attack the foreign tissue because the pattern of chemical markers on the surface, whilst very similar to yourself, isn't directly identical and therefore there can be a problem. Now those immune-suppressing drugs often mean that there is damage, progressive damage at the same time very slow, albeit slow, there is progressive damage to the organ. So most transplanted organs have a lifetime which is lower than the lifetime they would have naturally. And in the case of a heart transplant, um, I help at the hospital near where I work, Papworth Hospital, one of the world's leading transplant centres, we do all the microbiology testing for them. And I go to the ward rounds there and, and there are patients on the list there who have had heart transplants 20 years ago. Um, they're still doing okay. There are other patients at my other hospital where patients have kidney transplants and the kidneys last about 10 years and so on average it'll buy you at least a decade of good health maybe longer but probably less likelihood of having a, a long-term sort of equivalent human lifespan benefit from having that organ because of the other attendant problems that go with the immunosuppression and the effect of those immune suppressing drugs so you you could transplant these organs on but as they get uh, worn out their function is going to be less good and they're therefore going to be compromised more quickly when you transplant them again. And also, plumbing them in is very difficult surgically once you've taken them out of one person and putting them into another. the scar tissue and it's difficult to plumb them in. So most surgeons probably wouldn't want to do that. Mm, fascinating. Um, here's an SMS uh, from John. And John says, Hello, Doc. Uh, when I drink a lot of cold water uh, and measure my blood pressure, I see a huge drop compared to before drinking the... Um, is this a scientific thing or is it just rubbish? Well, there's certainly a, a strong response of your nervous system when you have exposure to cold. Um, it might well be that sitting down quietly and drinking a nice cool drink is very calming and this will help to reduce your heart rate and your blood pressure. But there's also other responses including something called the mammalian diving reflex which is when you immerse yourself in very cold water some kind of primitive reflex kicks in which has a, a, a metabolically suppressing effect. It drops uh, blood pressure and heart rate, and it's called the mammalian diving reflex because we think that deep-sea diving mammals like cetaceans, whales, which can spend hours underwater, they probably use the same reflex to enable them to suppress the drive to breathe and to burn up energy when they're deep down hunting squid at maybe two kilometres underwater. And so it's possible that what is being en enacted with this cold water is this primitive diving reflex. You stimulate certain parts of the nervous system with this very cold um, water immersion sen sensation and this has this suppressive effect on certain parts of, of how your physiology works. Mm. Um, John is calling us from Nigel. Um, John, what's your question? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm an avid golfer and I would like to know how these cameramen who cover the golf pick up that golf ball when it's flying through the air at tremendous height and tremendous speed. Because sometimes I go to these golf tournaments and you can't see the ball that goes that quick. 
Well, I think partly because they've been doing it for a long time and they're bloody good at it, as a friend of mine put it. And, and the other is that they start with a very wide shot and then zoom in. You can think of this uh, as a yeah. bit like down a microscope. When I look down a microscope, I might be looking at a cell which is a thousandth of a millimetre to a couple of thousandths of a millimetre across. Mm. Now, if I just went in there looking for one set of cells with the microscope so I could see an individual cell like that or a bacterium or something... Um, and I put it on the highest power, I'd never find it. So what a, a microscopist always does is they start with a very low power lens, which is like times 50 or times 20 or something. You put the slide under the microscope, you look around until you find the right area where you think the cells you're interested in are, and then you go up a magnification, find them again, go up a magnification, find them again. So what these, these very good camera people are doing is they start wide, they know what the trajectory of the ball is likely to be, they find it, and then they close the shot right down, and then the very clever person in the mixing desk flicks the signal to that particular camera which is on the ball so that you don't have to then see loads of hunting around while they get their shot set up correctly because in the meantime they've got another camera and someone providing an, an exciting voiceover to keep you amused and distract you from what's actually going on behind the scenes. It's an amazing art. Hmm. Um, Chris, before you go, um, I have a question for you. It's a personal question. Um, one of my lifelong dreams is to orbit planet Earth, um, but on the journey, of course, um, I need to start somewhere. Um, I would love to see the Earth's curvature. What would be the easiest way to see this? Well, if you've got the odd few million to spare, <laughs> then you can become one of the first space <laughs> tourists because there are a number of companies now. Um, one of them is, is owned by Richard Branson and it's part of the, the Virgin programme. Mm -hmm. There's a rival company as well. I think um, one of the guys who set up one of these big internet companies is one of the rivals. And the idea here is that people will be able to book tickets and you blast off and you will get a number of minutes in space, I think something like 10 minutes of suborbital flight. So you don't go orbital, but you do go into uh, microgravity. So you experience weightlessness and you can therefore see the curvature of the Earth. But it, it, it won't come cheap oh. because those tickets are, are you're, you're going to need a few million, mm. especially with the RAND being what it now is, uh, maybe a few more million. <laughs> but uh, it, it certainly, certainly is being done now. And Stephen Hawking, the cosmologist, was, I think, supposed to be one of the first passengers, but I don't think he was very well and couldn't, couldn't go recently. Um, but they're certainly firing up and um, sending people into, into suborbital flights now. So I'd get on the waiting list if you're keen. Okay, well, you just... Um it depressed me a little bit there, but anyway. You'll have to do a few more shifts on 702. <laughs> uh, I guess. And, and then and put your fee up a bit, and mm. uh, and uh, maybe you'll make it. I think I'm going to try. Uh, Chris, <laughs> it's been really lovely chatting to you. Oh, it's been fun. Thanks very much. Absolutely.